Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given us about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. John's already prayed for us. Uh, We're going to look again at 1 John 5. So if you've got a Bible near to you, uh, hunt around. I think it's not the easiest of passages, so I think you'll find it helpful to have it open. It's on page 1,228 in one of the church uh, Bibles. I guess for many people, uh, Bob Dylan was a bit of a rock star prophet. Uh, He had the kind of curly hair and the gravelly voice and, and the battered Guitar, and he certainly saw the world with remarkable insight. Uh, one of his songs went like this You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be a barber and know how to cut hair or somebody's mistress, somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And it's true. All of us serve somebody. 
And if you've got to serve somebody, it's also true that you've got to trust somebody. It's true politically, it's true personally. Politically, this week, it's decision time. Cameron's campaign and Boris' battle bus, it all comes down to a small cross on a piece of paper. And personally, trust is the bedrock of all our relationships, isn't it? Incalculably precious in constancy and unbearably painful when breached. Politically, personally, it's true in life and it's true in church. When it comes to life's big questions, you've got to trust somebody. You can trust a Richard Dawkins that life is, as he famously put it, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Or you can trust Jesus that life is diffused with meaning and truth and beauty and the only place that you will find it is in him. And when it comes to church stuff, to to the detail of who Jesus is and what he did, again, you've got to trust somebody. And it was plausible but unsettling revisionist accounts about who Jesus was and what he'd come to do, controversial claims that were leaving the readers of this first letter confused. And so John writes to them, verse 15 of chapter 5, so that they might know that they have eternal life. As John draws this letter to a close, he sort of circles one more time around some of the key themes that he's been exploring. And the first one is this. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Verses 1 to 4. See, John says that that trust, that dependence, that settled conviction that Jesus really is the Christ, the king that God had purposed and planned and promised, John says you need to hang with that conviction. Because Jesus is the place where you find new life and new love. See verse 1? Everyone who believes, who trusts, everyone who believes and goes on believing that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And that new birth brings you into a new family, verse 1, because everyone who loves the Father, which by definition is what you do when you're born into the family, Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Of course, loving members of any family has its challenges. There are easy people to love in human families, just as there are difficult people to love. Every family has its mad uncles and its impossible aunts. You only have to think for a moment to the face that pops into your mind's eye. I think human families, for many of us, are they kind of glorious ruins, aren't they? Because at their best, they're, they're communities of love and, and security and joy. And at their worst, they're places of, of hatred and division and pain. And yet I think even when we're standing in the ruins of our human families, even the faintest glimmers of a faded glory in a loving relationship. It makes us long for for someone who can put it all right, who can kind of restore the wreckage of our lives. Anna is living with a friend of ours at the moment. 
Uh, she's 19, and she has a newborn baby. It's her third child. Three children, three fathers, all of them, it seems, abusive towards her. And yet before all those relationships and before the children, there was much that was going wrong in Anna's life before it ever had a moment to go right. Her family feels far more ruin than glory. 14 foster homes in as many years. It's kind of hard to imagine how lonely and unloved you might feel. And I know that ruin is written large on Anna's family, but its outlines are just as clear on our own. For some, it's the sadness of divorce or estrangement from a family member. Family member. And you know, even if our experience of family has been an experience of great blessing, few of us will have survived without difficult relationships. Painful relationships with a spouse or a sibling or a child. And whilst we easily see ourselves as the victims of family discord, if the truth be told, we can just as easily be the perpetrator of family division and sadness and frustration. Yeah, parents think the problem is with their children. Children think the problem is with their parents, and it was ever so. And so at our, our lowest moments, we, we long and we, we hope and we pray that there is someone who can put family right somewhere where I can be loved and accepted and forgiven and secure, that there might be a new beginning and a new belonging a new birth and a new family. And the truth is that that is possible in Jesus. Because John says everyone, whoever you are and whatever your background, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. As Francis Spufford put it, more can be mended than you fear. Far more can be mended than you know. Of course, in the Bible, God's family, the church, it's both gift and task. Being of God, born of God isn't something that you can do for yourself. It is a gift. It's as undeserved and unearned and as miraculous as your natural birth. But it does come with obligations to other members of God's family. There is in Jesus a new status, if you like, but there are also renewed standards, verse 2. John says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. See, John says, keeping God's commands, it's not something that you need to do to become a member of God's family. It's not even something you need to do to remain a member of God's family. But if you are a member of God's family, if you trust Jesus is the Christ, then John says that you will bear the family likeness. Which, of course, feels far easier in the aspiration than it does in the execution. Which is why John's comment at the end of verse 3, I think, is so striking. 
This is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. See, why encourage us to recognize that his commands are not burdensome unless it is a temptation that we are all prone to? The reality is that there are pressures from without and there are struggles within. The truth is the society we live in promotes a very different view of God's commands. That God's commands in the Bible are an infringement of our autonomy. They're a restriction of our liberty, a curtailment of our joy. And those pressures without, along with the struggles within, means that I am always tempted to believe that God's commands are a burden and not a blessing. I'm always tempted to believe that. Wendell Berry's uh, beautiful novel, A World Lost, tells the story of a young man, Andy Catlett. Uh, the novel's written in the first person and Andy Cantlett reflects on the life and death of his much loved uncle his uncle Andrew an uncle who is capable of extraordinary kindness and yet also great waywardness not least when it comes to wine and women and song Barry writes this uncle Andrew's taste in women ran simply to the available. His pleasures were restricted only by the possible. And then he has this very striking line. Uncle Andrew granted an uncomplicated obedience to impulses that men of faith and loyalty like my father struggle against all their lives. He granted an uncomplicated obedience to impulses that men of faith and loyalty like my father struggle against all their lives. Men who obey their impulses surely invite their own destruction. And I think there were moments when Uncle Andrew knew this too. God's commands? See them as a burden and we invite our own destruction. See them as a blessing Well, the way of faith and loyalty is a lifelong struggle, but it is the way of life in the family of God. Of course, John's particular focus here is on God's command to love his children. A new birth does bring a new belonging, and everyone who loves the father, John says, will love his child as well. And if every human family has a mad uncle and an impossible aunt, then every church family has the same sometimes in spades, and in all likelihood sitting next to you in the pew. But everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. As John puts it right at the beginning of this letter, if we claim to live in God, we must live as Jesus did, and that means loving God's family, warts and all. You see, our obedience may not be perfect but it is possible verse 4 for everyone born of God overcomes the world this is the victory that has overcome the world even our faith who is it that overcomes the world only those who believe that Jesus is the son of God so John says believe trust go on believing that Jesus is the Christ 
But then if you, if you have to believe, if you have to trust someone, the question remains, who do you believe? Who do you trust? And to that question, John turns in verses 6 to 12. Think for a moment of the scene that unfolds in pretty much every school playground that has ever existed. Some scuffed, need, runny-nosed, messy-haired eight-year-old squares up to the challenge of his opponent and bellows the question that demands an answer. Says who? Says who? And you know, things have not changed much because from playground to politics, people are still asking the same question. Says who? Yeah, Cameron and Johnson may have got rid of the scuffed knee and the runny nose, although Johnson's managed to keep the messy hair, but they're still asking the same question. Says who? Now, who says it as it is? Whose words carry the weight of authority? Whose testimony do we trust? Now, after all the shouting of the EU referendum debate has been put aside, all of us eventually, we have to trust someone. We have to accept someone's testimony as John puts it in verse 9 we accept human testimony in fact it's it's amazing how much of our life is based on trusting the often unexamined testimony of other people take the diagnosis of a car mechanic or a medical doctor yeah most of us trust their testimony about what's wrong with our car or what's wrong with our body because we don't have the knowledge we don't have the expertise we don't have the time to check it out for ourselves and you know even when it comes to the findings of the apparently omniscient field of science we trust the testimony of researchers who publish their findings in what we trust to be reputable peer reviewed journals And even if you are a research active scientist, and a number of people here are, even if you are a research active scientist, it is simply not possible even to read all the best papers published in all the best journals, let alone to repeat all their experiments. Scientists are no different from the rest of us. They have to trust the testimony of others too. We accept human testimony. We have to. It's impossible to get on with life without doing so. It's not just an inevitable way of knowing what's true. It's often a very good way of knowing what's true. Just because human testimony is sometimes flawed, either through ignorance or deceit, doesn't mean that we abandon trusting other people, other people say. We accept human testimony, John says, but God's testimony is greater. And because God has testified about Jesus, we can be confident about what we believe and about who we believe in. The second thing that John says here is that God has testified about Jesus. And only trusting his testimony do we have life in the Son. Now, there's no question that verses 6 to 8 are difficult. I suspect a very good week for Pete Scammon to be on holiday. And without testing your patience with all the arguments, I'm going to land somewhere. And difficulties aside, actually, the main argument of John is clear. He says that if you look at Jesus, who he is, and what he claimed to have done, if you look at Jesus and you say, says who? The answer of the Bible is God. 
God has testified it about Jesus, and only trusting his testimony do you have life in the Son. So the main argument, I think, is clear, even, some, even if some parts of John's argument are difficult. And actually, even the difficult parts of the Bible shouldn't worry us, but encourage us. It was the great 4th century theologian Augustine who said God gave us difficult parts of the Bible so that pride might be subdued by hard work and intellects which tend to despise things that are easily discovered may be rescued from boredom and reinvigorated. (laughs) So what does John mean by water and and blood and spirit, verse 6? In what sense are they in agreement and how are they God's testimony regarding his son? If you've been here over the last few weeks, and I I know some folks haven't, but the argument of the book, or the problem really that the book is addressing, the problem these first readers were facing was being clear about exactly who Jesus is and what he'd come to do. And there were some in the first century who were peddling all sorts of errors that were making that very difficult. And there was enough truth in what they were saying to gain a hearing and more than enough error to wreck the church. Now, on balance, it seems most likely to me that when John speaks about water, he means the water of Jesus' baptism. And when he speaks about blood, he means the blood of Jesus' death. In his baptism, the father testifies that Jesus is the son, that he's a a real human being, that he came to identify with and stand in the place of rebels, sinful human beings like us. But... And this seems to be the issue in dispute for John's readers, second half of verse 6. Jesus didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. In other words, Jesus didn't merely stand with and identify with sinners. He dealt with sin. As the first part of the book puts it, the blood of God's Son purifies us from all sin. John says that God's testimony about Jesus in history is that he didn't merely stand with sinners in his baptism, he dealt with sin on the cross. And yet, of course, to 21st century skeptical men and women, as soon as I say it, I can hear the silent objection from the pew, but, but I wasn't there. I didn't see for myself, I didn't see the baptism, I didn't see the cross. Of course, there are lots of things that you and I haven't seen, but we still trust they are true and real. For me, everything from Australia to atoms, and yet I trust what other people say is reliable. So whilst it's true that neither you nor I saw Jesus' baptism or Jesus' cross, nevertheless, John says, verse 6, the Spirit testifies too. The Spirit of God testify through those who were there. The apostles who saw Jesus' baptism and Jesus' cross, which is why John said what he does earlier, chapter 4 and verse 6, where he says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. In other words, the Spirit testifies to us of the truth of Jesus in the Bible. And the same spirit that caused the Bible to be written makes it a living word in the hearts of those who trust Jesus. Turning point in my own life was when I was about 16, 17 and I picked up a copy of Gideon's New Testament. Never really read the Bible before. 
read it and suddenly found that the person of Jesus Christ came walking off the pages. See, John says, verse 9, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater. And he says, if you've got God's testimony about his son, the water and the blood and the spirit, John says, you don't just kind of have information, you actually have the son. And in him, you have life, verse 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. God has testified about Jesus and only by trusting his testimony do we have life in the Son. I guess for many people here, if you live in Fullwood or surrounding areas, you have a lot. We have a lot. Certainly compared to the folks that the Norgate family are going to be working with in Cambodia. And yet actually, if you forget about houses and jobs and cars, you you just start with clean running water and we have more than millions and millions across the planet. But you know, you can own everything and have nothing. And you can have nothing but Jesus and own everything. The reality is youth and beauty and career, it will all fade. I'm not sure I had a huge amount of beauty or career to start with in the first place, but certainly in terms of age fading, I know that every time I go to the barbers and I see more clumps of grey dropping onto the black sheet. The reality is health is fragile and life is short. Health is fragile. All you have to do is ask any of the aging saints, the older members of our church family, who spend more time at hospital appointments than they do at parties. Health is fragile. Life is short. Sometimes brutally short. As the terrible events of this week have shown. Caitlin Moran put it like this writing in the times a few weeks ago she says we all come here in the end an nhs waiting room even if you are rich or lucky not everyone you know is and so you will be here one day this waiting room it was here before you were born and it will be here after you die You don't just wait in the waiting room. The waiting room waits for you. See verse 11? John says this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And if you have the son, you have life. And if you don't have the son, you don't have life. Because you can own everything and have nothing. And you can have nothing but Jesus and you can really own everything. Well, let's pray, shall we?
John says to believe, to trust, to go on trusting that Jesus is the Christ. God has testified about Jesus and only trusting his testimony do we have life in the Son. And so with the psalmist we pray, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me for you Lord, are good. Amen.